Welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Ryan Boykin, and I'm a fourth-year medical student here at the Medical College of Georgia. On today's episode, we will discuss pollen food allergy syndrome, also known as PFAS for short. I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Sarah Spreet, who is an associate professor of pediatrics here at MCG. She specializes in pediatric allergy and immunology at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Spreet. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I'm looking forward to our discussion on pollen food allergy syndrome today. My hope is that our listeners will get a better understanding of what PFAS is and why it's an important topic in the pediatric population. We will spend a little bit of time today describing the pathophysiology of PFAS and then go into how we evaluate, diagnose, and manage the condition and when it is time to refer to the allergist. So Ryan, what do you know about PFAS? Well, PFAS is considered a hypersensitivity reaction. It's triggered by the ingestion of certain fresh fruits, vegetables, or nuts. Individuals with PFAS will also have allergies to trees, grasses, or weed pollens. That's right. Many people still refer to PFAS by its old term, oral allergy syndrome. This former name describes what happens in the majority of patients, which is oral pharyngeal itching following ingestion of a certain fresh food. In fact, these symptoms are actually due to the cross-reactivity between plant proteins. So Ryan, what do I mean by cross-reactivity? Well, to put it in more simple terms, if someone eats a certain food and the protein in that food is structurally similar to a pollen that elicits an IgE-mediated response, then the individual will experience symptoms such as itching or swelling of the lips, mouth, and palate due to mast cell activation because the body recognizes the proteins look similarly. Good job. So, Dr. Spreed, is PFAS common? Great question. Yes, actually, PFAS is fairly common in the pediatric population. That's why it's a really important topic for pediatricians to be aware of. Did you know that the prevalence of PFAS in children is estimated to be anywhere between 4.5 to 20 percent? That's a pretty broad range. It is. And this wide range represents the variability of how pollen food allergy syndrome is defined in the literature. Some studies consider PFAS in the category of food allergy, while others do not. That's interesting. It is. And in my experience, I've also found that patients do not always volunteer this information to their parents or to their doctor because it might seem like a minor issue or people just ignore the itchiness. But on the other hand, the localized oral itching and irritation may potentially be distressing to the child and the family. So I'm guessing focus questioning would be important when taking a clinical history, especially for those with an allergic rhinitis history, right? Yes. For the general pediatrician, this condition should not be overlooked. While the risk is low, pollen food allergy syndrome may progress to a systemic reaction such as anaphylaxis in up to 3% of patients. That's a good point. And by understanding the underlying mechanism, common cross-reactivity patterns, and prognosis of PFAS, the general pediatrician will be able to recognize the condition early and provide appropriate education and evidence-based management recommendations to patients and their families. Additionally, the pediatrician may be able to initiate some primary management of PFAS, such as determining whether an epinephrine auto-injector prescription is needed and also when a referral to the allergist should be made. And with the increasing prevalence of atopic conditions like allergic rhinitis, it is probably safe to say that pediatricians are likely to encounter PFAS in their practice more often. Definitely. So let's dive deeper into our discussion by introducing our clinical case. Today, we have Jane. 
She is a nine-year-old female that presents to her pediatrician's office due to a concern for food allergies. Her mother reports that Jane was eating an apple three weeks ago when she said that her mouth felt weird. Mom is afraid to give her more apples and wants to know if this is an allergic reaction. Ryan, what other information would you want to know from this patient and her mother? Well, I would ask Jane to clarify the weird sensation that she experienced. I would want to know if she had any other symptoms at the time, such as hives, a runny nose, difficulty breathing, nausea, or vomiting. And I would also ask if this has ever happened before. Those are great questions. A detailed history is essential for a patient with this chief complaint. So Jane describes a tickling feeling in her throat when she was eating the apple. Mom thinks this began two to three minutes after her daughter started eating. There were no other symptoms. Mom is very worried because this has never happened before. Jane has not complained of having that tickling feeling again since eating the apple. Okay, I also want to know about her past medical history, specifically of any atopic conditions like eczema or allergic rhinitis. Great question. Mom reports Jane gets very congested during the spring and summer months. She typically complains of itchy eyes as well. An over-the-counter oral antihistamine keeps her nasal and eye symptoms under control. I think it would be helpful to also ask about family history of allergies. Do any of her family members have food or environmental allergies? Good thinking. Mom says allergic rhinitis runs in the family, so they are familiar with these symptoms. She also reports that Jane's uncle has a severe peanut allergy, so mom is worried that her daughter has a food allergy and is at risk for anaphylaxis. So Ryan, what details about this child's history stand out to you? Are there any other questions that might be important? Well, the throat tickling likely refers to oropharyngeal pruritus, or localized itching of the oropharynx. The family history of A to P is important too, since that increases her risk of developing food allergy or other atopic conditions. I would also want to know if this has happened before with any other food and if she has eaten apples since the first episode. Mom says that Jane is a bit picky with her foods and usually prefers other fruits such as bananas. She does not typically eat apples. Mom found out recently that Jane did have some apple pie at her grandmother's house about a week ago but did not have any throat tickling or other symptoms during or after eating the pie. Hmm, that's interesting. So eating a cooked form of apples after the initial episode did not cause her any symptoms. Correct. So based on the information you've gathered so far, what is your differential diagnosis for this child? At this point, I would be thinking about some IgE-mediated allergic response to the apple. I would also consider local irritation, periormal dermatitis, eosinophilic esophagitis, and of course, pollen food allergy syndrome, or PFAS. That's a great differential. With Jane's history of seasonal allergic rhinitis, the timing of her symptoms in relation to eating fresh apple, and the fact that she tolerates cooked apple with no adverse effects puts PFAS at the top of my differential. You're definitely on the right track, Ryan. So what do you know about the pathophysiology of PFAS? Well, PFAS is the result of the cross-reactivity between pollen allergens and plant food allergens. Patients must first be sensitized to pollen proteins either through an inhaled route or through contact of the skin in patients with atopic dermatitis. Right. So without a pollen sensitivity, patients should be considered to have an IgE-mediated food allergy until proven otherwise. Essentially, the immune system sees the plant protein as a pollen. Do you know what happens next at the cellular level? 
So at the cellular level, pollen-specific IgE molecules bind mast cells throughout the body. So when a plant food allergen that is structurally similar to the pollen allergen is ingested, there was a release of inflammatory mediators. Yes. And PFAS is unique in that it is fresh fruits, vegetables, nuts, and even some fresh spices that cause symptoms in patients. These allergen epitopes are sensitive to heat, acid, and digestion. Once they are denatured, like upon entering the stomach, the food protein no longer resembles the pollen. And so that's why our patient did not react to the apple pie, right? Yes, that's correct. PFAS reactions are generally localized to the oropharynx for this reason. However, this is generally not the case for an IgE-mediated food allergy. Why do you think that is, Ryan? That's because the common allergenic foods have highly stable proteins, right? You got it. And that's why IgE-mediated food allergies have a greater potential to cause systemic symptoms. So it's important to distinguish this patient's presentation from a primary IgE-mediated food allergy. What would make you suspect an IgE-mediated food allergy, Ryan? An IgE-mediated allergy to a certain food, such as apples in our case, would be suspected if there was no history of allergic rhinitis, and it would be higher on my differential if our patient had experienced additional symptoms. Right. IgE-mediated food allergies are characterized by a rapid onset of symptoms, typically with cutaneous involvement like urticaria, as well as other organ systems causing symptoms such as angioedema, respiratory distress, nausea, and or vomiting. So there's a greater likelihood of anaphylaxis as a result. They differ mostly in the extent of organ system involvement and in the fact that the food proteins responsible in pollen food allergy syndrome are heat labile and symptoms occur as a result of cross-reactivity with pollen proteins. That makes a lot of sense. So we know that PFAS is the result of the cross-reactivity between pollen allergens and food allergens. I know that there are different classes of allergens that have been implicated in PFAS, right? Yes. In fact, there are around nine families of proteins that have allergenic properties. Of these, there are three that are well-characterized and have clinical significance. They are the PR10 proteins, profilins, and the lipid transfer proteins. So how do these protein families relate clinically to PFAS? Well, certain fruits, vegetables, or nuts may have proteins in different families. The epitopes, or the parts of the protein that the immune system recognizes, of these are similar enough to the structure of certain pollens that cross-reactivity may occur in patients who are sensitized to that pollen. Consequently, these patients may experience immediate symptoms upon contact with the food. For example, those with a birch pollen allergy may experience oral itching when they eat fresh apples, peaches, plums, apricots, and or celery, while those who are allergic to ragweed pollen may react when eating fresh melons, such as cantaloupe, honeydew, and or watermelon. And someone who is allergic to mugwort or sage pollen may react to celery, carrot, parsley, and even onion. That's really interesting. It is. And these are just some of the more common foods that patients may experience symptoms with. However, the cross-reactivity patterns are broad and include even more foods. For example, did you know that some patients who are sensitized to latex from the natural rubber tree can actually have a reaction to kiwi, banana, avocado, or fig? 
Wow. So that means that patients may only experience symptoms with a single food. Other cross-reactivities may exist. Yes. So this should be a part of our counseling and anticipatory guidance for PFAS patients and their caregivers. That seems important. So is pollen food allergy syndrome mainly a clinical diagnosis or should other tests be performed? Good question. PFAS is often diagnosed clinically in a patient with known allergic rhinitis based on the history. However, skin prick testing to aeroallergens is recommended to confirm that they are in fact sensitized to the suspected pollen. In some cases, serum IgE testing may also be performed. Will the standard skin prick testing be able to confirm the diagnosis? Well, actually, skin prick testing to the food extract alone may yield a negative result because it's highly processed. A more accurate method of skin testing in a case of suspected pollen food allergy syndrome is known as prick-prick test. And what does that involve? We prick the food item, typically the fresh fruit or vegetable that triggered the symptoms, and then prick the patient's arm with the fresh substance. The patient may also be pricked with the highly processed food extract. In many cases, the patient will only develop a wheel and flare response to the prick with the fresh form of the food. I see. Okay, so at this point, let's go back to our patient Jane. Let's say that she sees the allergist and undergoes a skin prick test that shows sensitization to dust mites and birch pollen. Can you summarize the case and explain why this would be significant? Well, Jane is our nine-year-old female who experienced oral pruritus while eating a fresh apple. We also know that Jane has seasonal allergic rhinitis. And now with the skin prick testing results, we know that she is sensitized to birch pollen. Based on this, it is reasonable to diagnose this patient with pollen food allergy syndrome. Great job. The cross-reactivity of the PR10 allergens between birch pollen and apple are most likely responsible for her symptoms. So Dr. Spree, what about an oral food challenge? Is that ever used to evaluate for PFAS? Though not necessarily required or feasible for all patients, an oral food challenge may be an option. This, of course, should be performed in a controlled environment to observe for a reaction following exposure to the suspected food. I see. A thorough clinical history and aeroallergen skin prick testing consistent with PFAS is often sufficient to diagnose the patient. While an oral challenge can be performed, it is unlikely to provide additional information that would change management for this patient. So once we diagnose PFAS, what is next in regard to management? Typically, I recommend that the patient avoid the fresh food triggering the symptoms. So would our patient Jane have to avoid fresh apples? Though she may be at low risk for systemic symptoms, strict avoidance of fresh apples is recommended. As we mentioned before, there are multiple cross-reactivities within an allergen family, so talking with an allergist may prevent the unnecessary elimination of foods that a patient currently tolerates, especially for a growing child. However, because patients with PFAS can usually tolerate the food when it has been cooked, they don't necessarily have to completely avoid all the forms of the food, only the fresh form that triggered their symptoms. What about foods within the same allergen family? Should they be avoided too? That's a great question. No, in fact, these patients do not have to eliminate other foods in the same allergen family unless they are having symptoms when eating that food. And do these patients need to carry an EpiPen? Great question. 
The risk of a systemic reaction due to pollen food allergy syndrome is low, particularly for the fresh fruits and vegetables. For patients with localized oral pharyngeal itching only, who have never had any systemic symptoms, typically the recommendation is to avoid the fresh form of the identified food, and an EpiPen is not needed. However, it is recommended that patients who have ever had a systemic symptom or an anaphylactic reaction to the food should absolutely carry epinephrine auto-injectors. That is especially true for those with symptoms that are triggered by high-risk foods like peanuts or tree nuts. These patients in particular should undergo evaluation with an allergist. So it sounds like certain patients are at greater risk of a severe reaction due to a history of systemic symptoms or if they have had a reaction to a food considered high risk. You got it. Can you think of other risk factors that could trigger a severe reaction? Well, that would be things like ingesting large amounts of the triggering food, exercise, alcohol ingestion, NSAID use, or proton pump inhibitor use. That's right. The response can be dose-dependent. The other factors you mentioned may influence the severity of reaction because they alter the conditions or environment that the food allergen encounters. For example, a PPI decreases stomach acidity, so the food protein may undergo less degradation as a result. Similarly, exercising or NSAID usage may transiently affect the permeability of the stomach or the GI tract. So if a patient's pediatrician suspects PFAS based on the clinical history, at what point would you encourage them to refer to an allergist for further evaluation? The distinction between pollen food allergy syndrome or an IgE-mediated food allergy can definitely be tricky. That's because potential symptoms can be variable for those with PFAS. So if there is any uncertainty of the diagnosis or the patient's history makes the distinction difficult, a referral to an allergy immunology clinic will definitely help clarify the diagnosis. That would include unclear progression of symptoms or suspicion of multiple foods causing the problems. The allergist would also be able to perform further testing to confirm the diagnosis. I can also see how education is essential in the management of PFAS as the parent's role in a child's diet changes throughout their life. That's right. For children diagnosed with PFAS, it is necessary to educate the parent and family about what PFAS is and what foods they should be avoiding. And as the child ages and has more choices about the foods they eat, physicians should counsel them directly so that they can share increasingly more responsibility in their own care. You got it, Ryan. So what about allergy shots? Are these helpful in PFAS? Good question. Subcutaneous immunotherapy, also known as allergy shots, have been studied for the potential treatment of pollen food allergy syndrome with conflicting results. Due to the mixed results, there is no clear evidence that immunotherapy should be used for treatment of PFAS at this time. However, there is literature to support that PFAS may improve if the child receives a course of immunotherapy to the pollens that the child is sensitized to. As such, I think parents should at least discuss this option with an allergist to talk about potential role for allergy shots in their child. Good to know. Well, Dr. Spreet, I think it's time to wrap up our episode. I have really learned a lot. Let's review the key points regarding pollen food allergy syndrome. Sure, I'll get us started. Today, we used a case-based example to discuss the definition, pathophysiology, diagnosis, evaluation, and management of a patient presenting with symptoms consistent with PFAS. 
Pollen food allergy syndrome is a condition that occurs in patients sensitized to environmental allergens. The condition is characterized by a localized hypersensitivity reaction triggered by fresh food proteins that are structurally similar to certain pollen proteins. Diagnosis and evaluation depend on a detailed clinical history, which includes the foods causing symptoms, the time between ingestion and symptom onset, history of similar symptoms, as well as atopic history. We talked about the management of a patient with PFAS, including avoidance of foods that cause symptoms and the need for epinephrine autoinjectors in patients with symptoms related to high-risk foods or with a clinical history suggestive of a systemic reaction. We also discussed the important differences between a primary IgE-mediated food allergy and pollen food allergy syndrome. Lastly, we highlighted the importance of providing education and anticipatory guidance for a child diagnosed with PFAS including food avoidance recommendations and how education may change as the child ages. Overall, pediatricians should be able to recognize PFAS and provide patients and their families with counseling on the diagnosis, management, and referral options as indicated. Dr. Spreet, thank you for those take-home points. As a learner and future pediatrics resident, I know that learning about PFAS will help me be a better advocate and provider to my future patients. Thank you so much for joining us today on the MCG Pediatric Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. It was my pleasure. An additional thanks to Dr. Richard Bickle and Dr. Rebecca Yang, who provided editing and peer review of today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Free CME credit is also available for this episode. Please refer to our show notes and website for the link. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.